If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello, and welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Kate Clark, and I'm joined this week by TechCrunch's Connie Loizos. Hello. Alex Wilhelm of Crunchbase News. Hey, everybody. And Barrett Cohn from investment bank Scenic Advisement. Hello. How's everyone doing? Is everyone excited about the Lyft IPO? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. I think we were all pretty relieved to see that they priced ahead of taping Equity so we can talk about the latest and greatest Lyft news um, and not keep you guys waiting another day. Just about an hour ago, Lyft priced their IPO at the top of range at $72 per share. Um, this is higher than the initially expected range of 62 to $68 and gives them a valuation of about $24 billion. So, um, Alex, I want to pull you in here and talk a little bit about revenue multiples. What are your thoughts on um, the valuation and the, and the price? Yeah. So this morning before it actually priced, I did a little bit of math on where Lyft stands from a revenue multiple perspective. And there's two ways to kind of think about this. If you look at uh, Lyft's full 2018 revenue and just do a multiple off of that, it's about 11x, give or take, uh, at $24 billion. But I think that's a bit unfair because I think it's more appropriate to look at their Q4 revenue, annualize that, and then take a revenue multiple point, and that's 9x. Now, the question is, is that reasonable? Uh, Lyft, part of the ride-hailing kind of category, uh, has a lower gross margin than most software companies that are getting 9 or 10x revenue multiples today. Um, so to me, and I'm, you know, I know I'm kind of the team bear on the show, but it, it seems a bit rich. Uh, at the same time, though, I know we're hearing some commentary that it's also relatively fair or maybe even modest compared to some historical um, antecedents. So uh, 9x with the gross margins that it has, We'll see. But I mean, the market seems very enthusiastic given the pricing. Barrett is over there shaking his head. Yeah, he's so got, he's got what he has to I, was, I was watching a fly in the room. Um, no, I was <laughs> shaking my head. Alex, pretty much in agreement. Um, uh, but I will tell you that, you know, there are software companies that we're doing work for in the private markets. Um, you know, they're pricing at 12 and 13 times forward revenue, which is effectively the number you're trying to, you know, back into, right? With sure. looking at Q4 and you don't have forward looking. And when we're doing a private deal, we do. But um, I don't I don't think it's that rich. Um, and, and you know, I think the word antecedent, um, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to, um, um, I mean, I don't think it's appropriate um, only because there aren't any, right? This is all de novo stuff. Mm. And um and that's why, I mean, that's one of the things I find so interesting. I find so, tons of things interesting about Lyft filing, especially the David and Goliath narrative, which mm -hmm. maybe I'm the only one who thinks about. But uh, I, I think it's probably pretty well priced. I'm glad that you say that because I was actually just telling that that was to Alex before we started taping. And he was like, I, I definitely disagree. But I think it, it does seem like a good I, I do price. know what antecedent means, by the way. Um, <laughs> I just looked it up. No, I did. Yeah, I just looked it up on my um, iPad. Especially in comparison to what we're expecting from Uber, which is like a IPO at a valuation of like 110, 120 billion, um, which is a similar 10x multiple. So I think they're both going to be, I mean, it, it seems like they're both going to be reasonably priced IPOs, especially compared to some of the bigger um, comparable unicorn IPOs like Snap and Twitter. Right. So now we've been talking for months and months about how much it matters, who goes first, 
Barrett, what do you think about this? So Lyft is going out. We don't even know exactly when Uber's coming out. Right. Um, I guess a lot depends on how it performs, obviously, right. and how much time it has to like rise or fall. But what are your sort of general thoughts about this? Yeah. So, so what I find funny is that it doesn't matter who goes out first as long as Uber goes out first. <laughs> but if Lyft goes out first, it matters a ton because this has been the constant story. This is the narrative. This is David and Goliath. So Uber would have sucked the, the air out of the room, essentially, is what you're saying, had it gone out first. Well, it would have, um, yeah, it definitely would have deflated mm -hmm. some of the enthusiasm for Lyft. Mm -hmm. And I think Lyft going out first is a potential material liability for Uber. I, I would not be surprised if, let's say, for example, Lyft does not perform well, which I don't think will be the case. I think Lyft will do just fine. Mm -hmm. But in the event that Lyft did not perform well, Uber will have trouble. Um, there will be, it will impact Uber's price in the public market and they may resort to, ah, kicking the can another six months, putting another billion dollars of, you know, growth capital on the balance sheet and just biding time, which they could do. Right. Um, and, and so to that extent, what I find so interesting is I, I think that Lyft is sort of racing to be first and it's mm -hmm. a little bit of a middle finger, um, to say, you know, you tried to kill us for the last, you know, nine years <laughs> right. and we're still here. And by the way, we IPO'd first. Right. What do you think about, you know, I've seen comparisons um, between Snap and Groupon and other sort of, you know, money losing companies and public shareholders sort of impatience with them. The fact that they're trading so much below, you know, where they went out. So not not related at all. Not applicable here. No, period. <laughs> uh, totally different markets. Um, you know, Snap went. I think Snap, Snap is a classic case of a company going too early before it had figured out its business model mm -hmm. and losing a ton of money. Mm -hmm. um, Groupon is somewhere in the middle. They had figured out a nice business model. Uh, they were, you know, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the company. But then the kind of world changed of how people consume deals and uh, their market shifted and they didn't anticipate that. And, and the broader, you know, investor mm -hmm. market kind of didn't anticipate that. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there was a lot of zealousness right around uh, Groupon. Uber and Lyft are globally kind of category changing companies, and there's still a huge amount of room. And they figured out they they figured it out pretty well, right? These are fully baked companies. These are you know almost mega cap companies going you know that have that have figured out their business model while private. Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk about another company later on that that is having a little bit of trouble there. Mm -hmm. And I, I see them as analogous to no one but themselves. And in, in, in a category of their own. So I want to I want to touch on that just gently. And I know I've talked about this before on the show. So if you've already heard me bang on about this, ignore me. But if you go back and, and watch the Lyft Roadshow, and I presume everyone's had a chance to do that by now, at the very end, there are a couple of slides. And one of them shows they're kind of long-term expected results. And they're shooting for sometime in the future, the distant future, it's not even a listed year in the projections, a roughly 20% adjusted EBITDA margin. Adjusted EBITDA in this case is, is very adjusted. And so we can presume that a 20% adjusted EBITDA margin in the future works out to a very slim to almost nil gap operating or even net margin. And so these companies to me aren't as fully baked as, as we may think because they don't have a real path to material profitability at any scale that they can forecast. And to me, that's a facet of a business model that isn't actually figured out. And so I think there's work ahead of them and that isn't actually done. And so they could actually fall prey to the snap problem. Kate, go for it. I think, I think, wow, you just talked, you just said so many words so fast. But I think the bottom line here is that Wall Street's okay with that. And Wall Street can see that there's fast growth, especially with Lyft. And I think that's why, given that Lyft's net losses are the largest 
ever for any company going public, which I recently learned and was very surprised to see. Wall Street's okay with that because their um, the revenues are also sky high and are I think third largest ever to just following only Facebook and Google. And 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 growth trumps profit exactly. Can I ask though, how big can these markets be? So Lyft obviously is competing with Uber still in North America primarily. Right. I guess it's got you know the rest of the world, but uh, just in North America alone, how many you know the, the the streets are already sort of clogged with urban streets are urban streets are our but, streets are. But is it is it can drivers make money in places that aren't urban places? Yeah, it's a heck of a question. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we all have our own anecdotes. Um, my wife. Two days ago, had a Lyft driver who commuted from Los Angeles. Oh, God, that's awful. Right. Um, I mean, Fresno, I've gotten Los Angeles because the fares are better here. And I don't know, maybe people are nicer. Um, doubtful. Um, <laughs> but, you know, my parents still aren't taking Lyft and they live, you know, in an 80 mile away exurb, mm-hmm. right? But they will. And some of their friends are who are stopping driving, right? But have, have you know, the means to take a $14 car to a friend's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's still a lot of market to be had. And I think if we take our lens off beyond just, you know, our city myopia, which so many of us have, myself included, that I think that there, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of trans people to transport yeah. I mean, both Uber and Lyft want to be transportation platforms, not right. just ride hailing platforms. And right. the U.S. transportation market's worth like more than one trillion dollars. So I think the market's huge. And I think we should move on because we spent a long time talking about this. And we have, <laughs> we have so fun. We have other unicorns to discuss. In fact, we have a brand new unicorn, which is Casper. Connie, do you want to tell us a little bit about? Sure. Casper? I think this company is, you know, really fascinating for less reasons, um, including that, that it's doesn't seem very fascinating at all in, in many ways. It's an online mattress retailer. Uh, we've all heard about it. Uh, this week it announced a fresh $100 million in funding at a $1.1 billion valuation. Investors in the round include Target, New Enterprise Associate, and um, Norwest Venture Partners, as well as some other some other backers. Target, of course, has been a longtime investor in the company. Well, I shouldn't say a long time. I guess two years ago it invested. I think Casper was on the cusp of potentially selling itself to Target. Instead, they struck a deal. Target invested in the company and it's in many hundreds, if not a thousand of its uh, retail stores now, in addition to selling direct to consumer. And it also sells via Amazon. So this company is in a huge market, a uh, very crowded market. Yeah. And also, interestingly, Reuters had reported earlier in the week that it was thinking about going public. And I think a lot of people might look at this and say, oh, well, I guess Casper is not going public now. But Barrett, you say that, in fact, this new round doesn't suggest that at all. So explain why. Well, you know, we've seen Casper since its um, origin. You know, before I founded uh, an investment bank, I worked at a a consumer focused venture fund. Okay. Um, and so would see a lot of these, you know, pitches and deals and and so got to see Casper, you know, sort of from its inception and they had like meteoric growth. I had never seen a company grow revenues quite as rapidly. Really? Um, and I wow. didn't know that everybody in the world happened to need a mattress at the same time. But as it turns out, they did. And Casper grew and then they kind of built this category of like this mattress in a box and everybody copied them. Mm-hmm. But what's been interesting about Casper is they have like, they are durable. And they have they have really, I think, been thoughtful about looking at inflection points in their business and reacting to them by maturing, um, bringing on a professional CEO, doing partnerships with airlines, getting a target deal and opening retail stores and, you know, pretty expensive real estate, um, building brand. Right. So if you if you think about mattresses in a box, 
for the most part, Casper is the brand that comes to mind, mm. even if you don't own one, and mm. I don't. Um, there's a Lisa mattress, and other, but I, I frankly, I don't know who makes you know some of these others. Mm. Though there have been others who have scaled to 200 million in revenue in like three years, right? But a lot of those have fallen by the wayside because they have not diversified. And and what Casper has done of you know a remarkably good job. Nothing's perfect. No startup is perfect. There's always tons of bumps, but they've navigated those pretty well, and I think it positions them to be where they are now as potentially the market leader. Now it is a huge market. I mean, the mattress market is like massive. It's totally opaque. It was requiring a lot of disruption. I don't know if anybody's bought a mattress at like a mattress shop, but it's you know, like use car buying as right. a more pleasurable sure. experience, right? <laughs> There's huge margin in, in those deals. And mm-hmm. Casper's like direct to consumer and cutting a lot of that margin. I think there's still a lot of a lot of growth here if they can continue to manage their brand well. Um, and I don't see why it won't be a, um, a, you know, couldn't be a good IPO candidate. My my only question is, and I'm not under the sheets here, pardon mm-hmm. the expression. <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys heard that one. It's pretty good. I was right on the fly. Alex, I don't know if you caught that. Oh, oh, I'm here. I'm just listening. Okay. Terrific. Thank you. Um, is, uh, is diversification of product line. You know, that is where I think they need to figure out just, you know, how many mattresses can you sell? Well, they sell nightlights now. I know. Oh, well, the there you go. So, the sorry. They have nightlights and so they're done. They figured it out. Right, right. Nightlights, pillows, dog beds. Right. Weirdly, right. they're also selling nightstands, which I thought was interesting. Okay. Um, what's fascinating to me about all these companies and not just Casper, but across the sort of retail spectrum, is they've broken up these old school retailers, these brick and mortar companies. I mean, this other mattress company filed for bankruptcy, I don't know, Mattress Express or something, um, either this year or last year. But now they're going in and they're doing the same thing, essentially. I mean, I think Casper either has or plans to open 200 stores. Yeah. This other company had like 700 stores that went bankrupt. Right. I just wonder, what's the tipping point and what are they doing so differently well, that they- One, they're making their own product. Mm-hmm. Their prices are, you know, half-ish that of the uh, the brick-and-mortar traditional folks. Mm-hmm. And again, they're just a massive disruptor in this space that has not been disrupted. I think that a local San Francisco mattress shop, like, has their name on one of the arenas here. Is that right still? Yeah, I think like a mattress firm is mm-hmm. a, you know, I mean, they're <laughs> billionaires selling mattresses because the margins are really, really high right. at retail. And so that's where the opportunity was for a Casper. And I think there's still a lot of room to grow, um, you know, if they can continue to execute well, which is always a challenge, mm-hmm. right? Still and, a young I mean, company. Are these stores, do they have any inventory? Are they That's just a good question. Like I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I imagine either way they have less inventory, and uh, I'm sure the approach is very different. Like you said, Barrett, a right. lot of these other places feel like you're walking into a used car sales lot, and I'm sure Casper's offering a very different. Experience. Right, they want you to have an, an experience when you go in the store mm-hmm. as a sort of way to attract people to buy the mattresses. But I, as you were saying, they, they have plans to open 200 stores, but I think they only have a few right now. Um, so yeah. I've never. I don't know if there's one in the city. I've never seen one, but. And often these stores are like not cash and carry. These stores are showrooms. They're marketing, mm-hmm. right? right? So they build a nice store for, you know, uh, a couple of million dollars, whatever the number is. And then it's really, a you know, people order online and like the next day a box shows up. Sure. You and know. then you're less likely to return it if you've tested it out. Yeah, somewhere. that's right. That's right. And also, you know, they don't have to stock any inventory. I mean, it can be centralized. Just a smart model. Right. Hey, everyone. Don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. So speaking of, uh, you know, pre-IPO candidates, 
WeWork released new financials this week. Alex, were you tracking those? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think WeWork is one of the companies that's so big now. Whenever numbers come out, we all kind of gather around to take a look. So I'm going to give everyone the quick version, and I promise I'll slow down a little bit while I do this. Um, But according to various media reports that all kind of broke the numbers around the same time, WeWork's revenue grew from $886 million in 2017 to $1.82 billion in 2018, which is over 100% growth in one year. The other side of that coin is that its losses went from $933 million on a net basis in 2017 to $1.9 billion in 2018. So a lot of impressive growth, some really sticky net losses. And this comes down to kind of the bull and bear case that we had with Lyft, which is does growth actually answer all sins or is that level of loss and that pace of loss compared to revenue a bit too high for a theoretically uh, pre-IPO company? And Kate, I'm curious where you land on the uh, on that question. Yeah, I mean, as Reed Hoffman says with his blitz scale mantra, you have to buy growth and to to scale quickly. And we work as doing that, but this is its own category of unprofitable. Like you wrote in your story, Alex, um, in today's boom, rare is the tech giant that makes money. Some even lose a lot, and then there's WeWork. It's it's a lot. It's just- it's, who else lost 1.9 billion last year aside from Uber, right? Which I think lost two billion total. WeWork's not a tech giant. WeWork is a real estate. It's a traditional real estate company. We no, work sorry, is, sorry, is, sorry, Barrett. It's is, a software company sorry. on top of a real estate company. I'm sorry. I, think I misunderstood. <laughs> I thought we were talking about WeWork. So sorry. Go ahead. Carry on. It's actually the We company. I, I see. wish it you, is WeCo. Right? No, no, no. Yeah. But but obviously you don't buy that. That that is the argument that they you know today WeWork is equity, the company like capital you know e mm, equity. Mm, mm, um, WeWork is a real estate uh, you know commercial real estate firm, um, and if you traded it, it would be a REIT. You know. And it's, I don't even know where it's at now, but I know its biggest direct competitor was worth $4 billion a few couple right. of years ago. That's right. Mm-hmm. I, Re, right, Regis. And I'm having a hard, so I don't know if anybody's been in Regis, you know, not, not great. Um, uh, WeWorks are awesome, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, the, the price you're paying, the premium for awesome is, uh, you know, you're paying software premiums for literally a real estate play. Mm-hmm. I mean, they own real estate, they operate real estate, mm-hmm. they're diversifying in all kinds of different real estate. Mm-hmm. They're a real estate firm, a commercial <laughs> real estate firm, and they're going to be at the whim of, you know, real estate markets and and the the broader economy. And as companies, you know, grow and outgrow WeWork, then they outgrow WeWork. You know, they go find their own real estate and take that down. Well, what do you think of Adam Newman's argument that when the economy turns down, people are actually going to need to sort of downsize? So, you know, they might be even more liable to sort of turn to a WeWork. They might not want their huge office space, but they might want to sort of, you know... So, so uh, I think it's interesting. I mean, again, I, I run a, a, an investment bank for private companies. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it is a business model to strategize around a potential downturn. Mm-hmm. So I, I hear Adam on that, um, but I, I think that he needs to look at sort of the offensive, not the defensive. And the offensive strategy is what they've been doing. They've raised a huge amount of capital. They have a lot of capital. I think that's where I think that's where their strength is, right? Sure. They, they were early in a category. I think it's an extraordinary company. I think they've redefined real estate, much like Casper's redefined mattress, right? Real estate needed disruption. But, you know, they've, they've grown extraordinarily quickly. And, you know, unfortunately, currently, their numbers are going in the wrong direction, right? Occupancy rates are falling. Um, mm-hmm. Dollars per member are falling. And and the ship may get righted, but I don't see how a 
a turning, you know, a downturn in the economy will actually help that. Sure. I don't think he's ever looked forward to it, but that's always been his sort of argument. Yeah, yeah. But I have to say, I spent a little time with him a couple of years ago in advance of a disrupt interview, and he is very compelling in person. I'm not really surprised that so many people have invested behind this guy. I don't know anyone else who can say things like, this is not a real estate company. It's a state of consciousness and not get laughed at, you know, at least not tell your, but you don't laugh at him while you're in the room. Afterward, you think about him, you're like, wait a second. That was ridiculous. What he said, yeah. but when you're talking state to him, it doesn't sound that way. Oh my God. Can I also ask? So you also see some secondary activity. Has, yeah, is there a demand for WeWork that you're aware of? Or is that sort of like, what's, if you are seeing that, what does that tell you? Yeah. So here's what I'll broadly talk about. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we as a policy do not talk about the work that we do and, you know, we uh, not, that doesn't help the opacity in the secondary market, but we don't take out tombstones and, you know, keeps mm-hmm. private transactions private. Um, with that said, over the years, we have seen some very material sellers mm-hmm. of of WeWork. I think largely just for portfolio management perspective, right? They invested early. All of a sudden, they have a gargantuan position and they'd like to sell down to harvest some gains and take some mm-hmm. profits. Just, you know, that's conservative, but it wouldn't sell. In fact, uh, you know, I mean, just to, 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 be, to be candid, the non-starter was, I think there was a lot of fear uh, by a lot of these investors that they didn't want to upset, you know, the senior leadership at, at WeWork. It is a pretty powerful personality or personality group at the top. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe they feared, you know, retribution or something. So it's, it's a that's different animal. And by the way, that's the private markets, right? Mm-hmm. There's still personalities here. Right. These are not, you know, kind of... This is not General Electric mm-hmm. or some, you know, large right. public company. It's an individual at the top. Mm-hmm. It's still venture investors who may, you know, still, you know, want to appear, you know, very founder friendly because they're right. still look, looking forward to the next deal. But they have these gigantic gains and their LPs are like, excuse me, sell, right? you know, take some chips off right. the table. So, you know, I, we probably had a half a billion dollars of, of sell side opportunities in the company that we've just not been able to act upon. Wow, that's really interesting. But an evaluation like this, I mean, that's still not a not a huge percentage. They've raised nearly double what's li- what Lyft has raised. And of course, like you said, it's a real estate business. Real estate's expensive, but that is a lot of money. It's about eight and a half billion dollars, not including the, I mean, obviously the billions of dollars they almost raised from SoftBank. Well, they also have massive debt. Right. I mean, not yeah. massive, but right. I mean, they've, is, they've, they've offered, and, and by the way, this includes debt funding. I, I think that they issued the coupon at, you know, almost 8%. And today it's trading at like 91 cents, meaning of a hundred. So I don't know what that equates into bond math. There's probably over a 10% yield. Right. Um, and it was junk when they issued it. Right. Again, junk bond. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, uh, and now it's not even rated anymore for uh, structural reasons. So you know, this is, this is, the market is speaking. Right. Indicators. Right? <laughs> that, um, uh, but again, I think, I think there's still a lot of, I mean, there's not a lot of valuation left, right? I mean, it's $60 billion. Really? That's no, pretty rich. 47, 47 whatever it is. Sorry, but 47 still, billion. Still. Um, uh, but, you know, they were, they were, they were a really early disruptor. And this is a market that has huge amounts of capital in it. Um, and real estate investors, some of the richest investors in the world are real estate investors. We're looking for places to put money. And we work as one of the most disruptive companies we've ever seen in commercial real estate. And so I, I think I think it's it's interesting. But again, we'll see if the zealousness is warranted or not. Mm-hmm. So you're optimistic about the future for WeWork? Sorry, who are you speaking to? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we'll see. I mean, we're all going to be paying close attention the next couple of years to see what goes on there. But we'll I think see. we should wrap up on um, one final topic. And that is that um, another investor this week seems to have been caught up in the college admissions scandal. Connie, you want to tell us a little bit about what happened at Lightspeed? Yes, it's it's a big deal. Um, you know, this is a 
person who is not sort of a, a name brand VC, uh, you know, he was not sort of big or hasn't been big, I should say, on the conference circuit, but very well known, very highly regarded uh, in the venture community, Chris Sheppy, uh, who co-founded Lightspeed uh, back in 2000. Uh, he actually co-founded it with a couple of guys who um, eventually formed their own firm called Opus, but that's another story. He, he came together with a, a, some, a, you know, handful of other guys. Lightspeed has done an amazing job, especially in recent years. Of, it's a like a it's killed it on the SaaS front. In any case, Chris um, told his partners apparently recently um, that he had hired Rick Singer, who is the Newport Beach, California businessman who's in the middle of that giant college bribery scandal. Apparently, he told them this soon after, uh, well, first getting a lawyer, <laughs> um, but uh, soon after uh, seeing the Singer um, sort of, you know, reported on by the New York Times. I don't know this exact sequence of events, but Lightspeed apparently sort of quickly decided that it had better separate with him. It's it's kind of, you know, shocking. It's sad. You know, as a parent, I understand uh, a parent's motivation. Um, but in this case, it's so kind of beyond the pale. Um, he apparently paid $630,000 uh, via cash and stock donations to Singer's sort of alleged nonprofit that wasn't. Um, I think the idea was to get his son on the University of Texas freshman class list, as well as to eventually get him a slot helping to manage uh, the school's um, high school team, which eventually did happen. So. Chris is out. Big deal. Um, I'm not really sure how this impacts Lightspeed's funds going forward. They have a very strong bunch of investors. Uh, I guess we'll see how sort of uh, Lightspeed's investors, it's it's limited partners, handle the whole thing. Chris is the second guy, though. Um, industry watchers probably know Bill McGlashan is, um, well, first, let me make clear. Sheppy was not accused of anything. Um, he just you know, was involved with this guy. It was enough that Lightspeed decided to separate ways. Bill McGlashan is sort of a more egregious case because um, McGlashan was a sort of a big deal at the top of TPG. And he was accused of participating in this bribery ring. And his involvement was sort of particularly egregious on two levels. First, uh, in recent years, he'd been leading TPG's social impact strategy. Um, but privately, he was helping his son secure a spot at a school, which means presumably that somebody who earned it would not have gotten that school, which is, you know, very socially unjust. Also, um, Bill was sort of caught on tape agreeing to bribe a senior athletic director at USC, agreeing to pay a test center administrators to give his son more time to take a college entrance exam and then relatedly signing for a special test center uh, where his son's answers would be corrected had he um, or excuse me, after he completed the test. So all this stuff is terrible. I'm sure it's like mortifying to his poor kid. I don't know what to make of all of this stuff. I just, I sort of on one level think, you know, as sort of the rich have gotten richer, the stakes have gotten higher, these um, sort of schemes have gotten kind of a little bit more outrageous. I'm not really sure what else to make of it. Barrett, I know you're a dad, your kids are sort of my kids' ages. So yeah. um, we're a little ways away from, you know, putting ourselves in the shoes of these people uh, for a variety of reasons, including that. But what do you think of this? And, and do you sort of expect that we're going to see more fallout from this scheme or related schemes? It seems it, it seems fairly far and wide um, amongst kind of a, a similar cohort of people mm -hmm. um, who I think you know, sort of feel that the rules don't apply. Uh, so it's not obviously limited to the venture world. It just, we're just seeing that here. Right. So I think we're going to see more names that we know appear on a list of folks who, um, I think, you know, made some poor decisions around, uh, 
how to you know give their children a leg up, which I certainly understand the the intent behind. Mm-hmm. The, the the sad part for me is these kids are now like scarlet lettered. Right. right. They're getting kicked out of schools. Their tran- their transcripts are not applic- they're not are not transferable mm-hmm. and they're widely known. And whether they knew that their parents were doing this or not, um, it's a I mean, it it it's a tragedy. It sucks. It really does. So, you know, I, I just I, I think the whole thing is a total shame. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, I think there are fairly well established ways to help uh, enhance your child's ability to get into a school should you have the means to do that. Right. And it's called going through the front door and mm-hmm. become a, you know, generous donor in a manner that benefits everybody at the school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know what the rules are because, you know, my kids are in like first grade. But um, <laughs> but if if, you know. If, the, if those are the if those are the you know best practices, I, I don't know why they weren't used here. Right, it's very unfortunate. I'm just sort of curious to see who else uh, is impacted, who we know, and we'll be talking about weeks from now. <laughs> anyway, Barrett, thank you so much for coming. It was fun. Yeah, thanks, thanks, guys. All right. Well, thanks everyone. See you next week. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. <laughs>